0: Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks everybody. Stick around, I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready, grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind, let's go. God speak, and then a separate organization Free Ventura Action is really making a difference as we head towards the primaries in June and then the major election in November. We desperately need to stand up and be counted and being involved. So there's various ways you can do that. Well, having said that, we want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter seven. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our servants team will get you a Bible and you can open up once again to... The Gospel of John, chapter 7, we're reading through our Anchored in the Word series, and I want to wish you, uh, in advance, moms, a happy Mother's Day this whole weekend, but tomorrow, obviously, as you celebrate that. And I want to thank those who have uh, given me so many uh, condolences and letting me know they're praying for us and our family. Our family has went through a heavy time, not only over the last uh, month or so with my mom. Uh, this is the first Mother's Day I won't have a mom to call. She's went home to be with Jesus. So I want you to know she's having the ultimate Mother's Day up in heaven. So praise the Lord and left us all behind to pay the bills. She is uh, joyfully with the Lord. and uh, But on top of that, um, Tammy, who we haven't talked so as much about her, she has had two aunts uh, in the last five months and an uncle all pass away. Uh, an uncle this week. And so we'll be getting involved with that. The two weeks after, my mom passed away, my stepdad passed away. So we're organizing his memorial service as well. There's nothing like death to recalibrate your life. It puts everything back in order. You see things more clearly because when death is not on the horizon or you're not saying goodbye to loved ones, sometimes you can be lost in the fog of what life's all about. But it has a way of reframing things. My grandmother uh, passed away on Mother's Day some years ago. And she was the one that is really uh, accredited with praying all of us into the kingdom. And uh, she was a fiery little gal from Oklahoma. Her name was Jewel. And she went to a rest home to see my Aunt Marie, her sister. And uh, it was on a Sunday. So they usually had a service there. And at this uh, specific Sunday morning, the person that usually ran the service with 10 or 15 people didn't show up. So uh, another individual said, well, I got a call at the last minute. I'm not really sure what to do. I've been given the ball, but I don't know what to do with it. So there was a long pause. And then my grandmother said, well, the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So I'm uh, just a saying so. That's the way she talked, from Oklahoma. And the guy was startled by her boldness and her walk with the Lord. And he said, well, ma'am, I, I think you should run the service because you're obviously no more than the rest of us. And she said, no, sir, I'm not a preacher. I just raise them. And uh, at the time, my grandfather was teaching adult Sunday school at a Baptist church, and my brother was teaching home fellowship, and my dad was teaching home fellowship, and I was pastoring a church. And it rings in my head as she uh, shares, no, sir, I'm not a preacher, I just raise them. And as we think of this Mother's Day weekend, and we look at our text here, a part of our Anchored in the Word series, it's very difficult to choose a passage in John to preach because you want to preach every single chapter. It's very difficult. You see, this week's reading was chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. Chapter 6 is about that spiritual carnivore that really startled the people that Jesus said, you need to feed on my flesh and drink my blood. He wasn't literally talking about carnivorous activity. He was talking about spiritually feeding upon him and being refreshed in him in your your relationship with the Lord. We're going to look at chapter seven, but chapter eight's epic because it's the woman caught in adultery, and it's such a powerful display of how Jesus deals so tenderly with a woman in sin, and how he deals so strongly and wisely with a group of judgmental jerks that all walk away one by one from the oldest to the youngest when he challenges them that He who is without sin cast the first stone. In chapter nine, who doesn't love chapter nine because there's a blind man who was healed of his blindness by Jesus and he has the shortest testimony in all the Bible. I was blind, now I see. What else you want to know? That's it. Very good witness. He doesn't add no superfluous information But we want to look tonight at John chapter 7, stand with me, we're going to read the first uh, 10 verses or so, 9 verses in chapter 7. So we look at our message, the cost of his calling, and we're going to learn seven valuable lessons from the cost of Jesus' calling to understand in our own life, as he calls us, we may not be exempt of some of these things. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly if you do these things show yourself to the world for even his brothers did not believe in him then jesus said to them my time is not yet come but your time is always ready the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify of it that its works are evil you go up to this feast i am not yet going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Lord, we pray that now as we look at the cost, Lord Jesus, of your calling, the conflict, the adversity, the challenges, the difficulties, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in these historic times to be a voice, come what may, Lord, to our lives. Lord, we pray that you'll give us courage and boldness and sincerity as we walk with you and love you and serve you. Lord, help us to be salt and light with our friends and neighbors, our family, our coworkers, those you bring along our path, that we can touch them with your amazing grace. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Anyone who dares to challenge the establishment is in danger of execution. We know this whether you're a journalist that may be a reporter that is reporting on President Putin in Russia, you may get a poison cocktail for breakfast. These things are well documented that through the last 20, 25 years of his leadership, any reporter that speaks against him, even if they try to get out of the country, end up getting poisoned And dying. Now, there's a lot of ways to deal with what people would say are the dissidents to the establishment, but Jesus was an incredible threat to the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And it tells us here the first thing we want to learn about the cost of his discipleship and, and learn for ourselves is that there may be a significant price to pay when you stand up, when you speak up, when you are a voice. We have seen in this last couple of years, people that have been fired and let go and canceled and removed from social media platforms because they dared to speak against the establishment. Tells us in verse one, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. There's a price on his head. Have you ever been afraid, especially in these last couple of years, of some of the people that are so bold and tenacious you've actually feared for them and their lives? I've thought about this with uh, Robert F. Kennedy and his new book, The Real Anthony Fauci. And if you haven't read it, oh my goodness, what an incredible read. All documented because you see Bobby Kennedy is a lawyer. He's not going to put anything in print that they can take him to court for. And he documents all of this stuff, and as I was uh, doing a Q&A with Bobby at a forum up in uh, the Silicon Valley a couple of years ago, afterwards, and I had been hearing all the rhetoric surrounding him, you know, he used to be the number one contributor as far as uh, opinion pieces in the New York Times until he started speaking against the establishment about the world of vaccines. He then was blackballed for 15 years. Tucker Carlson recently did an interview with him, and he told him how brave Tucker was for daring to have him on video because he had not been in a video and interview in 15 years. After I did this event with Bobby, and we heard the information he was sharing and things. In the Q&A, I was asking him about the Anthony Fauci, and my wife said to me afterwards, she says, I'm afraid for Bobby's life. I said, me too. <laughs> because, you know, the Kennedys have a way of getting shot. Have you heard of that? <laughs> right? JFK dared to speak against the industrial military complex was assassinated his brother Bobby receiving the nomination for president also was assassinated Jesus now they are seeking to kill him but his message is not one that you would think is political in nature but anything that runs upstream away uh, against the establishment can be politicized Even if it's religious in nature, as Jesus' message was cutting to the heart of people. The crowds were amazing. They were listening to him. They were following him. They were talking about him. The name of Jesus was on everybody's lips. And it infuriated the religious leaders, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to snuff him out. There was a price on his head, and there is a price to pay when you go against the establishment. Don't naively think if you make the stand at work for truth and reality or if you make the stand even spiritually in a church to stand up for truth and liberty that everybody's going to pat you on the back and give you a, a reward. The reward you might get is the left foot of fellowship right out the door. You're toast. You're gone. Now, this specific week that is surrounding this event, the events in chapter seven. It tells us in verse two, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The Jews had this feast in October that was basically a seven-day campout of thanksgiving for God's faithfulness, how he took care of the children of Israel through 40 years of wander, wilderness wanderings. They would make these uh, tents, if you will, or basically very rude, rustic coverings with boughs of trees. They would do it on the roof of their house. They would do it on the streets. They would do it on the outskirts of town. And for seven days, they would just be thankful for how God took care of the children of Israel, and to remember that, and to memorialize that, and yet through their traditions, they added one more day. It's called the great day of the feast, and that's the one later in this chapter where Jesus poured, or the priest would pour out water, and it was a picture of water coming out of the rock in the wilderness, and Jesus would stand up and say, whoever's thirsty, come to me. But before this, it's a big deal. You see, everybody's going, so there's not only a price on Jesus's head, but there's also trouble in his family. I don't know if any of you have had any, just raise your hand if your relationship with Jesus, maybe even this last couple of years, has caused a little conflict with any of your family. Anybody in the room? Oh, there's about half of us, right? So just realize this is part of the cost of a calling in your relationship with the Lord. There's trouble in his family, in verse three. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now that sounds good, right? The end of this says they did not believe. So you have to now insert through all of this reading a sarcasm and a trash talking like only brothers can do. Do you come from a big family? I come from a big family. And can my family talk trash? Let me tell you. Right? (laughs) We used to joke that Uh, Our friends were so ruthless with their mouths and how they could talk trash. You better be one very tough individual psychologically or you would never recover from the kind of abuse your own friends and family would give to you verbally. But the brothers of Jesus are telling him, hey, you know what? Let everybody see your works. You're doing all this stuff, and and they know what he's doing, but it's hard for them to wrap around that their big brother, Jesus, is the Messiah, Savior of the world. Now, granted, I would also have a hard time with that. Wouldn't you? It's your brother, right? You've been listening to your brother, you know, yammer on about you making your bed and doing all kinds of things your entire life, and now you go, you're the Savior of the world? Come on. Now, as This continues on in verse four. No one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for even his brothers did not believe in him. They're basically egging him on from a place of unbelieving sarcasm as they're giving their brother at home a hard time before this big feast because everybody goes to the feast. Everybody goes to the feast. And they know Jesus He never misses a feast. And so they're egging him on to go there. They know that the religious leaders want to kill him there. Now, if you really love your brother, are you going to egg him on to the place they're going to to execute him? I think not. Unless there's tremendous turmoil and conflict. There's a spiritual battle going on with our families. There's a spiritual battle going on with Jesus' family. There's a spiritual battle going on with our friendships. Of people that don't know the Lord or they do know the Lord. And this is the thing that's hard sometimes as we're in conflict with humans that Paul the Apostle tells us that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers. We're in a spiritual conflict with individuals. And Jesus is in a spiritual conflict with his brothers Now, this is not the first one in this time of ministry that he had. In Mark chapter 3, his family thinks he's crazy because he could not so much as eat food because the crowds were so intense. In verse 21, it says, But when his own people heard, that's his mom and brothers, about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Jesus' mom and brothers thought he had lost his mind, thought he was crazy. And so they're coming to rescue him. They're coming to save him. He doesn't need saved. He doesn't need rescued. But they think, you know, he's lost it. He's totally lost it. Now, we know the actual names of his brothers. We don't get the names of the sisters. In Mark 6, 3, it says, is this not the carpenter? These are people that are challenging who he is. The son of Mary, his mother, and brothers James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us, so they were offended at him. These brothers of Jesus, he has four brothers, and we don't know how many sisters. Obviously, in that uh, an generation, in an era where there's no birth control, people can have 10, 15, <laughs> you know, in a litter, just like puppies, but a lot of kids. And so we know at least there's five brothers, there's also multiple sisters. And one of the first people that when Jesus rises from the dead that he wants to reveal himself, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, is his brother James. Now James is going to become the apostle and the leader over the church at Jerusalem. He ultimately is going to give his life for the faith in Christ. Now I would think that if I'm Jesus' brother, I'm not, you know anybody that's a name dropper? This is the ultimate name drop, isn't it? Yeah, you know, when Jesus and I were growing up, my brother and I, were out fishing, and, and I mean, wouldn't you just drop Jesus' name all the time if he's your brother? <laughs> well, when James writes his letter or his epistle, he doesn't even say that. He says in James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Now, Jude also, the book of Jude, is one of Jesus's brothers. He believes in faith, so we know that two of them come to faith, no doubt probably all of them, but two of them. But Jude says this when he introduces his book, Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now he drops the name, but it's his brother James. I'm like, why would you drop James' name instead of Jesus? Because they were so humbled that they looked at him no longer as their brother, but as the Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they dared not. They said, we are his bondservant. But we're not even <laughs> claiming that we're his brother. The second thing we, third thing we learn, excuse me, is there's divine timing for his life. For he says in verse 6, my timing has not yet come, but your timing is always ready. As he's talking back and forth with his brothers. His brothers are not surrendered to the Lord They are not walking in the timetable of the Lord. And so their timing, he says, your timing's always right. Just do whatever you want because that's pretty much where you're living your life. And that's true of anybody that's not surrendered to the Lord. You're not on the Lord's timetable. You're not on his schedule. You're not being directed by him. But when you're a child of God, each one of us that believes the Lord, the men and women in this room that have surrendered your life to the Lord, the Lord is directing your steps. He's directing your path. He's in season and out of season. He's showing you what and what when and where and how to move through life as we see here and also in a couple of moments. The fourth thing we learn is there's hatred for his message in verse seven. The world cannot hate you, he tells his brothers, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus called out sin and he was merciful to sinners, but he called out sin for what it was so the world hated his guts. Now if you call out sin for what it is, Man, you will be vilified, demonized, and attacked, whether it's in social media, whatever it might be. There's a, uh, I recently wa- watched an um, interview with a woman that is a, a member of parliament in Sweden. And in Sweden, they're just implementing this whole hate crime thing. If She had quoted in a pamphlet 20 years earlier, she's a Christian, and she had put in this pamphlet about sexuality, she had quoted Romans chapter 1 that homosexuality and lesbianism is sin. Now, she said this in this pamphlet 20 years ago. But they've found this pamphlet. They are now charging her with a hate crime. From a pamphlet she wrote 20 years ago, and she has, uh, Sweden has a free speech part of their constitution, as we do as well, but it no longer is free speech. It's a hate crime. If today you say that homosexuality, lesbianism, transgender, if I simply say to you that biologically there is male and female binary relationships, I am now... A homophobe, a transophobe, whatever whatever phobe you want to call me. And so people self-censor now, right? Because we can't say such things. That marriage, according to the Bible's definition, is between a man and a woman. But we have a Supreme Court justice that's going to be sitting on the bench, as she's sworn in this summer, that when asked in her committee hearings to have her confirmed to that position of the highest court in the land, only nine people are in the, obviously on the highest court of the land. When she was asked to define or describe a woman, she could not because she said she did not have a degree in biology. A four-year-old can say boys and girls and understand the difference, right? In their kindergarten type of explanation. You see, our message is hated by the world. It is hated by the world. This is why Christians are so shocked when the haters come when they simply stand up for biblical truth. And they're shocked. I'm like, are you so naive? Now, we have all kinds of words to gloss over What does Jesus say? He says, because I testify that its works are evil. So if he talks about adultery, he calls adultery, adultery. But adultery sounds, I don't know, too sin-oriented. What do you think? Let's call it an affair. That sounds like I'm going to Paris or something, right? I'm going on an affair. We've got to change terminology so that it doesn't smack of right and wrong good and evil. And Jesus says of his brothers, you know what you guys? Nobody's hating you because you're not standing for anything. Nobody hates you because you never stand for the truth. So of course the world loves you. Jesus says in another passage, he says, beware when everyone speaks well of you. Did you know that's a warning? Beware when everybody speaks well of you, because you don't want to ruffle any feathers, you don't want to stand, now don't, don't get me wrong, it's not like you're going around verbally wanting to punch people in the nose and pick fights, but when you are asked about certain things and you declare simple truth, do you expect them to throw their arms around you and give you a big kiss? Is, is that the temperature of the world right now? Will you be able to stay on YouTube, on Twitter? On Facebook, probably not. That's why, isn't it shocking, boom, Elon Musk that is a darling of the left has now become enemy, public enemy number one. Why, because he dared be a radical for free speech. Joe Rogan, the largest podcast audience in America, until he dare have Robert Malone, the inventor of mRNA on his program and the entire onslaught of the left tried to bury him. So how dare you try to speak up and declare any kind of truth that is against the establishment, that is against the narrative that Joe Rogan was taken ivermectin and hydroxychloric when they went on and on and on about his horse dewormer. you see you can be the darling as long as you stay in line and Jesus tells his brothers he said you know what you guys nobody hates you because you never stand for truth but it hates me because I do stand for truth and the cost of calling sometimes. That's why uh, Trump was so viciously hated, because he's just calling them out fake news, <laughs> fake news. And now I want to tell you the most terrifying news that has come out in America so far, more terrifying than anything else Homeland Security is now starting its own disinformation governance board. Have you ever read George Orwell's 1984? This is called The Ministry of Truth, which the main character of the protagonist, the main character of George Orwell's story, Winston, he he works in this back room, and, and he's, has to destroy, he has to destroy anything that goes against the narrative. And it's called this, this hole. He, he throws this, the wrong information into the memory hole so nobody knows the right memory. And so now, this is what all propagandist regimes do. Socialists and communists. They begin to control the narrative They're the thought police. This is what you call a totalitarian government. An authoritarian government is a bully as far as bullying its people around. A totalitarian government tells you what to think and what to say and how dare you say anything outside of what you think and what you say. And please don't think out loud. That's why anytime you see interviews on anything going on in China, every one of them is the model student. They're like, our government is wonderful. It keeps us safe. We are happy. Yes, they're like little robots because of the social credits now that is coming. Don't you realize the cost of calling and for us just to have the calling to stand up for freedom is going to cost us something in this next, next decade. As the cultural war rages on, as uh, Mayorkas, the guy that cannot secure a border... Is now in charge of that. I want you to know they will be able to secure what you say, but they will not close down the border because this is their this is their agenda. Let everybody flood across because this is how you break down a culture and become globalists and then control all their thoughts. This is not like people think it's just bad leadership. No. They look like morons but they are accomplishing exactly what they want to accomplish. The food shortages are coming, are no surprise, and it's right on time. Because if people are worried about food on the shelves, they won't be standing up against the government. They have a playbook that's been going on for 100 years in communist countries, and that's coming for us. So, we're not going to be winning any public awards in the near future. We're not going to receive any uh, medals of honor. Our badge of honor will be people standing up for the truth that is not very popular. The fifth thing that we learn from Jesus' cost of his calling is the uniqueness of his movements because you see, Jesus wants to travel with who he wants to travel with, and right now his brothers are not in line with the Lord. He wants to travel when he wants to travel. They're about four days ahead of his timetable, and he wants to do it how he wants to do it, not in some big public fanfare like they tell him, but in this case he comes secretly, for it tells us in verse 8, You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. He's going to come four four days later. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Just because Jesus is the Savior of the world, he entrusted himself to nobody else's schedule but his own. And he was moving in God's divine timetable according to this this line of what God had for him in a specific way. He's going to end up right in the middle of the feast when he shows up. Now there's controversy about what everybody's saying. He's a polarizing figure in Israel right now. Verse 11, the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. We find out in this passage that if you spoke out, well, especially in chapter 9 when we get there, if you spoke out publicly in favor of Jesus, talk about uh, cancel culture, they kicked you out of the synagogue. So everybody wanted to be a part of their community. They wanted to be a part of their society. They wanted to be a part of what, um, every, nobody wants to be ostracized. And so they knew if they spoke about Jesus, now this must have been, therefore, in hushed tones, they're whisper, whispering to each other, like, I wonder if he's coming to the feast. I, I think he's, he's really good. I think he's the Savior, the Messiah. And others are, no, I think he's evil. He deceives the people. And isn't that what the whole crux of the matter is about this controlling of information, disinformation, or misinformation? Is that the government now is going to tell you the propaganda that they want you to believe. Whereas we have grown up in a culture, and a society of free speech, it's called the, the, the public square of free ideas. Now, I, if I talk to a guy who believes in the flat earth, like, you know there's people out believe the flat earth I mean they're totally committed to it Do, do you know that there's people that do not know or do not believe we walked on the moon they they will get red in the face as they get angry and tell you about the flat earth theory or or nobody walked on the moon now in a free society, you can believe any crazy thing you want to, and you can tell anybody about it, and you can go on social media and tell people you think the Earth is flat and that American astronauts don't walk on the moon. That's called free speech. Just because you're a crazy person and believe crazy things doesn't mean you don't get a chance to say it. Because you see, the truth is never afraid of bizarre thoughts, because we can tell the truth. But when anybody wants to control the narrative, and that's what the religious leaders were doing because they were afraid of the truth, they were afraid of the embodiment of truth of who Jesus is, and so they wanted to control the narrative. You may not speak about him publicly, or you're kicked out of church, out of the synagogue. You may not come out in support of him. You may not, in any of these things, declare your faith in him, or you will be ostracized you will be put out. The seventh thing that we learn is there's a reality in his message that's so powerful. That's where we're going to end and unpack a couple of thoughts as we wrap it up. Verse 14, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? He never went to their Jewish seminary, and yet he speaks so powerfully from the word of God, and so authoritative from the word of God. And Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine or my teaching is not my own, but he who sent me. It is his, it's the father's. The father's putting these things in my heart and I'm declaring them to you and this is the mind-blowing verse that if you'll wrap your head around it, it's so true and so powerful and in the middle of this feast, Jesus wants them to grab a hold of this reality as well as the empowering of the Holy Spirit later in this chapter but he says this in verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. If you hear God's word or you read God's word and you apply God's word, that will confirm that this word of God that you heard and you applied to your life has such power and effectiveness that you'll say it came from God. Jesus says, really, this is the litmus test of the power and the authority of the word of God. The power and the litmus test is that, hey, God says this, I applied it, and the result was exactly what God told me it was going to be. Have you tried that out? Have you checked that out? Now, there's a simple test. Now, we're, this is not for an offering. I'm just picking it because it's a simple, concise one. As it says in Proverbs chapter 3, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You might say, hey, I don't even have vats and I don't have a barn. Well, the principle's very simple. If you honor the Lord with your possessions or your finances, meaning you give, you tithe, however you choose to do that, you pray about it and you give to the work of the Lord. He promises that the resources that are going to come back to you will just bless your socks off. Now, I have practiced this from the time I was a young Christian. I was reading through. I hadn't really I didn't know what the concept of tithing was because I didn't grow up in church. I was just reading in the book of Genesis, and as I'm reading along, I read the story of Abraham. And Abraham took 10% of what he had uh, offered to Melchizedek after the battle of the kings when he rescued Lot. And I thought, wow, if... Father Abraham, this tremendous guy of faith, gave to Melchizedek this 10%, and this seems to be a plan of God. I want to start giving to the work of the Lord. So as a young Christian, not knowing anything, I just started giving this 10% to the Lord. And the Lord has blessed my life for all of these years because this passage is true. How do I know it's true? He says it. I applied it. And its effectiveness is real. Now, if you hear the passage and you never do it, can you ever really tell if this is real? No, right? Because you never put it to the test. So Jesus tells us in John 17, 17, underline that verse, check it out. Anything that you want to know, if the Lord says this and you apply it, you will know that it's true. Something that's hard. The Lord, as I was reading God's word, God says to love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Now, like most people growing up in the world, I've never prayed for an enemy unless it was for a big rock to fall on them. But God said, bless them, pray for them. And so when I began to have enemies and people at odds with, I began to do exactly what God said. And what happened in that process was God changed my heart and I no longer hated their guts. And I went, wow. God must know that he tells me to pray for my enemies because I can't pray for God's blessing on them and hate their guts at the same time, because eventually the prayer in God's grace overwhelms my hatred. I'm like, well, God knows what he's doing, right? So I just, I hear a passage, I read a passage, I do the passage, and I go, shows I am the passage works. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Christians so often do not do. Now this is the way James says it. You know, every day you wake up, and well, I don't know if you do, Every day you wake up and you go in the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you see the damage that's happened, right? Overnight, the older you get, I'm headed uh, with breakneck speed towards 60, I'm 57. And you wake up in the morning and your face, the wr- you know, it stays wrinkled a lot longer. Like because you, the collagen's going and so it takes probably an hour or so for the wrinkles actually to fall out of your face, for the gravity to work in your face. And, and so James says, it's like, you know, that, it's like that in reading God's word. When you come to God's word, it's like a mirror that shows you what needs to change so that you can go out into public and be presentable. He says it this way, but the doers of the word, and be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. When you see God's word like a mirror and you see the things that he wants to transform in your life and you apply them, then he says you're going to be blessed as you do that. Same thing that Jesus is saying. If you'll do what, if you will in your heart to do what he instructs you to do, check out this guy. He's, he's had a bad morning, Right? looks in the mirror, gets some help, looking a lot better. Check out this girl. She's got she looks like a dumpster fire. She's had a she's had a very bad day, right? And now she's all cleaned up and the mirror helped her out. Sometimes we come into church like that. We're just like we're like a train wreck. And we hear God's word and we leave and we apply God's word and God begins to put our life back together. These are the things that Jesus is saying. Now, it also brings a message, but if you don't hear the word and choose to do the word, then you can't share the word because a message should be coming from your life. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby." But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What is the milk of the word? That means you hear the word without doing it. What is the meat of the word? I heard the word, I did the word, that's the meat of the word. It's actually by usefulness, it tells us here, by exercise of usefulness for knowing good and evil. So we're either this baby, a couple of babies here, check it out, very cute, adorable, right, But there's Christians like that. They've been in church for 50 years. They're still babies. Because though they've read the word and they've got plaques on the wall and they've heard the word in multiple sermons, they never do it to see if it actually will release power in their lives. So they're babies, perpetual babies. They have enough of Jesus to get to heaven, but not enough of Jesus to bring heaven down to planet Earth. They have a saved soul and a lost life. But it would be much better to be two mature adults, right? You can eat meat. You can process things. You're a carnivore. You're getting some protein. And that's what it's like to do the word and see that it actually is a God-given, heavenly-sent message to a broken life to help you live a life that's victorious. Last one the major result at the end of a life, Jesus gives us two illustrations. One is if you hear his words and do them, you're like you're building your house on the rock. In Matthew chapter seven, therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these words sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And it looks like this picture here. Your life is built on a rock, solid. You're hearing God's word, you're doing God's word. 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 And one brick at a time, one two by four at a time, one, you know, uh, Laugh and plaster at a time. You're building a structure that can stand the storms of life. But when you hear God's word, you don't do it. 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 When the storm comes, your life falls down around your ears and collapses like this house in the sand. And it doesn't matter if you take to heart the word of the Lord concerning your marriage or raising kids, whatever it is. If the Lord gives you instruction in raising your children, and you hear it, and you do it, then it's gonna produce good things. If he gives you instruction about how to love your wife, or how to respect your husband, and you do it, over and over and over, you're building a solid foundation. Jesus said, you wanna know what doctrine comes from heaven, or from man? Do what I tell you to do, and you will see the results, that the truth of God's word is heaven sent, because men do not speak with that kind of authority that changes people's lives. But Jesus stood up in the middle of that feast and began to teach them exactly that. To teach them and instruct them about the power of simply doing God's word. You know, there's nothing more joyful than having children that when you ask them to do something, they do it, right? I know it's a miracle when it happens. When it happens, and and yet, when you stay at it, you're just training the child in the way they should go. You're, it takes three things to raise great kids. Love, truth, and discipline. And through the years, as parents, sometimes you're prone to say, it doesn't work, I'm giving up, oh no, it does, just doesn't work. No, it does work. Doesn't mean there's not a struggle, doesn't mean it's not a battle, doesn't mean it's not hard. But if you'll love them, tell them the truth and correct them. Love them, tell them the truth, and correct them. One day they become these amazing adults That actually people like. And you might like them too. Because you never gave up in the process of training them up. (laughs) Jordan Peterson, who became famous writing the book 12 Rules for Life. He said, raise children that you might like. (laughs) That seems like a pretty straightforward proposition. But I see a lot of people that are raising their kids. They don't like them very much. And it's not the kid's fault. Because parents simply aren't using those three tools God gives them. Telling them the truth. Loving them. And correcting them. It will have a life-changing effect when you do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We pray that you'd build us up and strengthen us in our walk with you. Lord, as we look at the cost of your calling... Lord, we realize there's a cost that we're going to pay in this world that we live. And we pray that you would strengthen us and empower us to be obedient to you, filled with the work of your spirit, that would be tuned into your timetable for our life, what you want us to do, where you want us to go, who you want us to do it with. And Lord, that our lives would be fruitful to bring glory to your name and to expand your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those hearts that are here tonight and Lord, they're, they have some heavy things going on. I just pray that you would meet them in a special way right now. Lord, their hearts have come in heavy on this Mother's Day weekend and maybe there's a strained relationship with their adult children. Lord, I pray that you would bring your peace and bring your comfort that your spirit would minister in a way that no no words from a person can, but in your kindness, Lord, would you touch their hearts? Would you strengthen them? Pray for those moms that feel lonely, brokenhearted. Pray that you would be their comfort and peace pray for those moms lord that they want to be a mom but they haven't been able to get pregnant or have a child and every year when mother's day rolls around their hearts are broken lord we pray that you would touch their lives and you would be the giver of life to their womb and help them have conception and and the joy of being a mom. Lord, there's so many things that can rob us of our our peace and our joy. Lord, I pray for those things that are stealers and thieves in our souls here this afternoon. That you would overwhelm them with your goodness and your kindness to get our eyes on you and to put our faith, hope, and love in you, by your spirit, and by your word. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. I will worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep.